The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail. И ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show today. Lincoln's Bible is here. My dear friend, back for her third tour of duty on the Prevail podcast. She was, of course, my very first guest somehow 21 episodes ago. So now the Prevail podcast is old enough to drink. Exciting. And I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for supporting the podcast during these first 21 episodes. 21 episodes unbelievable. So I asked LB on the show because she has a new podcast out called The World Beneath. And this is a, calling it a podcast is almost a disservice. It's 20 episodes, right? So 10 episodes of the 20 are narrative about the history of mobsters and spies, which if you follow Lincoln's Bible on the Twitter, you know that's pretty much her bailiwick. So in this podcast, she's taken the history of the mob in this country and the history of spies in this country, put one on top of the other and given us an overview of how those two worlds came about, how they intersected and how they intersect still. So 10 episodes are that narrative story. And the other 10 episodes are what she calls a sit down, which is just an interview or a discussion similar to what I'm doing here where I have people on and talk, except that in her case, the discussions are about the subject that was just covered in the podcast. So I go on her podcast. In fact, as you're listening to this, it is Friday. Yesterday, I would have been on her podcast talking about mostly World War One and the Zimmerman memo and 
all kinds of things. Um, heady stuff, really. So I was afraid because we recorded it a long time ago and I don't, I couldn't remember what we discussed, but I did listen to it and it is actually, I think, pretty good. So, um, you know, go have a listen to that. Subscribe to her podcast. It's great. If you're curious about how all these things work and these dark forces, the criminal underworld that animate life in this country and everywhere around the world, it's it's basically a, uh, it's like taking a college class in it. It's wonderful stuff. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough, as you will hear, because I keep talking about how great it is as I'm interviewing her. So I wanted her to come on to talk about her and her background. She has been pretty forthcoming with some of her experiences. So you can tell if you've been listening to her flyersides or following her on Twitter or watching her with me on Narrative Live with Zev Shalev, you know already a lot about her. And I tried to present it in a more um, linear way so that you really get a good idea of, of who she is, what she's about, what her experiences are, and how she, in her words, Forrest Gumped her way into all this stuff. It is pretty remarkable. And even I learned a lot talking to her for this particular discussion. So once again, it's a kind of a long talk. So once again, I'm going to stop talking now so that we can get to the good stuff. We'll be right back with my friend, Lincoln's Bible. It's me, America's favorite whistleblower, Ed Snowden, wishing you a happy 4th of July from the epicenter of democracy, Moscow, Russia. What better way to let freedom ring than to do what I did, to blow the whistle on all the illegal NSA spying by stealing as many tetrabytes of classified material as I could fit on the flash drives and hand it over to the guardian of liberty, Vladimir Putin. I know there are people who think what I did was wrong, that I'm some sort of traitor. People like Adam Schiff and Devin Nunes and Barack Obama and Liz Cheney and pretty much every member of the intelligence community. But those people don't understand that it was my moral duty as an American to cripple the most important intelligence agency we have just to tell you that Uncle Sam is reading your emails. It's true. Intelligence officers have nothing better to do than monitor your Yahoo mail account for Cyber Monday specials from Brooks Brothers, appeals for money from Act Blue, and updates on what's no longer streaming on Netflix. That's why I spent 40 days at that airport in Moscow to alert you to this horror. And yeah, I know there are some people who point out that spending 40 days in that airport without bowing to the Russian mob is like spending two months at the Bada Bing and not encountering a soprano. These are the same folks who point out that there is a process for whistleblowing that doesn't involve straight up espionage. But those people don't love America as much as I do, which is why I'm going to spend the rest of my miserable traitorous life in this Russian hellhole. Me, Ed Snowden. And now, back to the assholes that prevail. Okay, so we're here with Lincoln's Bible, who I can now not call Lincoln's Bible anymore, even though I've I've said, even among my family, I'm always like, Lincoln's Bible, Lincoln's Bible, LB, 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 LB Lincoln's Bible, blah, 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 because I don't want to slip by mistake. But now I can call you Stephanie. Hi. Hi, Craig. <laughs> been so, I mean, I, I'm so appreciative to you and my friends who have been, you, you guys have been really sacred with that. And, and it's, it's meant a lot to me. <laughs> I, I, I just want to thank you and let everyone hear me. Thank you. And acknowledge that it wasn't hard. I, I can't imagine it wasn't easy. You know, it must've been a little hard because when we talk, it's just Greg and Stephanie. And then you switch into the mode of only saying LB 
um, when we're live, <laughs> right. we're live on that thing. So both you and Sev have been really lovely with me and I, I do appreciate it. I do. Sure. Well, my, my wife's name is Stephanie, so it makes it easier for me to just call you LB. It's yeah. just, and you know. I didn't come, you know, LB is something that everyone came up with as sort of a shorthand because I was never thinking as you, I don't know, for you, you always had your, your name out there. But who knew we'd end up being accounts on Twitter that people followed? It was just so strange. No, the whole thing uh, is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I get, we've talked before. I asked you before why you picked the name Lincoln's Bible, but it is very clunky to say. You know, it's not. Because I it's, never thought anyone would say it. Right. Yeah. It's oh, like. Yeah. Moscow Never Sleeps is another one. I said, you yeah. need to come up with a pen name. He's like, how about this? I'm like, okay, it's completely clunky and it's annoying to say, dude. <laughs> but whatever. It's cool, but uh, yeah, I have well, to be as like, Moscow as we all are, As chatty as we all are, I don't think any of us ever thought we'd be addressing one another by these Twitter handles. It's just so strange. Um, so I'm grateful to, I think that's why, you know, the, my followers started just saying LB cause it was just too much. Yeah. It's too clunky. Yeah. It's too, it's too, um, too much of a mouthful. And again, it wasn't something that was ever meant to be said because a lot of this was completely unanticipated. I mean, I was talking as, as we're recording this, I was on stuttering John's podcast yesterday and I was uh -huh. saying, you know, I really thought back five years ago or four and whatever it was four and a half years ago i really thought that this thing was going to be over so fast i really thought yeah. at that time hey once the republicans know that this guy's with the russians i mean god republicans hate russia we're going to be they're going to want to get rid of this guy and i was so wrong and you know that it's just uh i didn't anticipate how long and how drawn out this would be i really did not think that at this point in the game, we would still be talking about all this stuff, but we have to keep talking about all this stuff. We have to, it's our, it's our civic duty, you know? Yeah, it is. I, I mean, for me, it was, I didn't see Bill Barr coming. <laughs> no, I really didn't. Uh, I really, that really caught me off guard because here was Mueller assembling this team of people who had all prosecuted members of the crime family or uh, the syndicate behind Donald. <laughs> Yeah. It's an actual crime syndicate behind him, everybody, which is the whole point of what I've been doing as uh, as LB. And, you know, here were these hardcore prosecutors who, including Mueller, because he was the one who, who did the Gotti case, you know, who clearly knew about Donald and had all kinds of information. He was assembling them all. And then they didn't go after the money at all. And, uh, and then Bill Barr came in and did the same thing that 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 works for the American people. And that is where somebody just shows up and says into a microphone on a televised thing, yeah, this isn't really this. Look away. And Americans just go, okay. They, it just, whatever someone stands up and just says to them, they accept. And, I, and by they, I can make it very specific down to, it's actually where I believe our fourth estate has come in terms of uh, cable news entertainment. You know, there are great investigative journalists that still go, okay, we're not accepting that line. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, we're going to yeah. dig deeper and we're going to we're going to expose. But they're actually getting squeezed out of their channels, not because of anything malicious. It's just 
that kind of long form investigative journalism that keeps bringing context uh, to the to the moment that we're in and reaches back and pieces things together like what you and I were doing. It, that sort of long form magazine journalism is really the place it's always had. And uh, that's going away, everybody. So we have to create these new places and these new means. And I don't think you and I had any idea that's what we were doing either of like, no. okay, well, we'll pick up the ball and, and run with this because it was needed. You know, let's, let's get in there and dive in and help and try to piece this thing together four and a half, five years ago. Um, and who knew it would be social media and, and these Twitter threads <laughs> that yeah. would get us there. Yeah. No, but uh, you know, Twitter wound up being such a useful tool and that's the thing. Social media is not inherently bad or inherently good. It just is a thing. It's, it's like any technology. It depends on who controls it, who regulates it and how it's being used. It could be a, a, an enormous, uh, force multiplier for good if we choose to have it be that way and instead mark zuckerberg and your friend uh cheryl sandberg have leaned into the evil because they're I amoral jerks who don't care know i just i just um oh, oh that woman oh she's just under my skin now i want to talk a little bit about you because i think people are curious about you you've been really if you watch all of your flyer side chats in the morning and and the things you've said through the last how long have we been doing narrative months i can't remember i, I don't know um if you piece all of that stuff together it's not difficult to figure out who you are right. and that you are who you are and i think one of the nice things and i've been telling you this for months the nice thing about your podcast coming out is that now you are who you are everyone realizes that you're legit, right? Yeah. And that when you say you have an uncle who worked for the NSA, you really did have an uncle who worked for the NSA. Like this isn't just, you know, you're, you're, you're not, um, you know, the proverbial 400 pound man living in your parents' basement spewing this stuff, it's real. So there's a couple of threads that I wanna, not Twitter threads, life threads that I wanna ask about. So the, the, the first, the first one, I think, and the first way that everybody became aware of you was the Mark Burnett thing, the the the, the conversation in the kitchen. Oh, so, you know that, convo. yeah, the yeah. kitchen convo. And I think you've you've said a lot of times that you force gumped your way into a lot of these things, and you have. I mean, you've been, you overlap a lot of areas, which are which is interesting. How did you manage to be in this kitchen? What was the deal with that? Uh, so. <laughs> So crazy. I, I do want to protect the kitchen, not because I'm I know. loyal yeah. to anybody or anything. It just, I do think it's wrong to bring people into the, and that was 15 plus years ago, to bring people who into the mix who, you know, it, it, it wasn't anything nefarious. I know folks have read that thread. It, it, it truly was. I was just in this, in a home in Malibu, listening to people who knew have a conversation around uh, some issues uh, and it wasn't even gossipy. It was, I, I, it's hard to explain it, but it was, it was just a professional, very polite, interesting conversation that uh, folks were having about. And a side comment that came out of it from people who would have known was that Donald Trump was in debt to a bunch of Russians. And so I heard that you know, uh, and I, it stuck in me, it stuck in my brain 
this is how my brain is, everybody. It's me, not anybody else. Sometimes little things like that, I they irritate me. They irritate me. So, and so anyway, these sort of lovely people. So how I ended up in that was a, a very, <laughs> it's gonna, I had had a, a tech company of all things. You know, I came out to, uh, out to Los Angeles to write, to be a writer. I was a writer. I had my first um, job was working for a writer director and his producing partner um, who were sort of this old guard heavyweights, you know, they kind of dinosaur from a dinosaur era, um, but lovely, lovely men. And so they taught me a lot and I just learned a lot, you know, just working with them and started to write. And then I had gotten this idea. This was way back in like web 1.0, right? Like people were, didn't even really, weren't even really using email all that often. It was just a bunch of like, Dudes talking about Rush on Batman reports. <laughs> like, Rush is awesome. Dudes. Yes. So I, it was, that's so funny. Um, it was mid 90s, mid to late 90s. And so I had had a, I had a, a associate and I was like, you know, I have this idea. It's like, what? We should be able to do video. I swear to God, it's like, we should be able to do video communications, one on one communications that are secure uh, over this internet thing right and um basically what we're doing right now on zoom everybody we're like yeah. having, i i was like well why don't we should it should be made this was dial-up time nobody had broadband everything was that horrible right <laughs> and so i created yeah. a whole I, I i i went and started a company it just was insane and and we had the first uh we were sending the first video through email it was a video communication company and we were um i was you know, doing what were called dynamic interfaces around the communication so that any kind of advertising, any kind of interest, even we had voice recognition of if people are talking about a certain conversation, we'll insert that um, in a dynamic user interface, the kinds of advertising and content that will speak to what they're talking about. So if they do want to take a trip to Italy and they're talking to their grandma about a trip to Italy, boom, up will come, you know, the best rates on flights and things. So I, I patented all that shit. <laughs> okay. I did. And then I had a, um, and I understood all of that at a time before anybody was sort of doing that. I just saw it. I just saw, Oh, this is where it's all going. And, uh, and then also a voice uh, messaging system to go with that. So that if I was, if I was trying to call you, Greg, and I couldn't reach you, I could leave a video mail. Uh, we called it mug mail at the time. Um, is how we how we secured that, and that was going to allow you to do one time view only, um, or what, what we called the Mission Impossible mode, right, right, where, right, or the non authority mode where it could blow up. So basically, Snapchat, right? So, so basically, face, and then there's groups, and you could be in dynamic groups with people, and you could only communicate with them, and then, or it could be an open conversation. So it's basically what became of Facebook and Snapchat came way after us. Um, now, that whole damn thing blew up when the bubble popped even though we weren't a website we were a tech company and i had some of the best engineers in there you know making this this uh this software just a true freaking geniuses like the guys that were doing the packet delivery like or that yeah. early stuff right sending it through um we our company just you know it just 
crashed and burned because of the, all the money disappeared. And people forget about that bubble bursting. It was devastating. Yeah. And it took us right along with it before we had an exit. So we all lost everything. We all lost our shirts. We all lost all this incredible tech and lost control of our intellectual property, unfortunately, because of some issues with the, with the patent attorneys and that law firm, which also blew up on us. So anyway, that's my long saga of that era. And I was a writer. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? But it was a really, it was a really interesting, fun time. The thing about doing, uh, and some of our first clients, my first clients were business clients because I had to shift everything into a, a business, a business to business model to make, try to bring some money into this company while after everything blew up to try to uh, survive it. And we just couldn't survive it. So I had entertainment companies. Um, Playboy was an early, you know, because it's video. So I was going to ask about Playboy because that's another thing you've hinted at before that yeah. you worked there. So what was that all about? Well, I was Playboy Entertainment Group, and I was the worst executive ever to come into Playboy Entertainment Group. So I, I <laughs> it just wasn't a good fit. But they were a client. <laughs> they were a client, and as the sort of company blew up, they they. Uh, uh, made me an offer of, you know, can you come in and run all of our marketing? Because we think you just did a brilliant job with all this, all of our online marketing, everything's moving to online. And so I came in, I was a senior vice president of marketing for this big brand. So I was looking at it that way. I was like, you know, still my twenties. <laughs> this was insane. My late twenties might've turned 30. I'm not sure. And I was like, Oh God, you know, it, one of the top three brands in the world as someone who had been in, in the software space, um, playing around with marketing and branding. And it was just, uh, you know, I knew a bit about that world. It just was really an exciting opportunity. Um, and it just was a terrible, terrible, terrible fit because I was over in the entertainment group, which people don't realize at that time, Playboy had, I think we had 12 channels. So it was all, it was all the channels, right? Which were, and figuring out how to market that content or just those channels. Um, and I didn't realize that's what I would be doing. Uh, into into the web sphere, right? Into because there was, you know, it wasn't regulated like running ads on on the MSOs or on the on the on the um, satellite companies. So, you know, you, they're very restrictive. You couldn't really run <laughs> an ads for Playboy TV content or the other channels that they that they had Spice and all this stuff. We got creative. We did like a logo where you were right or empty stadiums of all the men are gone because they're all watching Playboy TV, things like that. <laughs> we could do ads like that. So it was, a, I learned a lot in a very short amount of time. And then um, we, it, I just got out of there. It just wasn't going to work out. And so that was where I was at before the kitchen. <laughs> so okay. yeah, I'm completely I, um... burned out from being a, a CEO, uh, the only woman, frankly, I think it was like me and Meg Whitman at the time she was up North and I was in Southern California. So it's like, you know, that whole thing, that whole effort, you know, you're working hundred hours a week, never a day off for, for years at a time that blowing up. And then this clash at this great big, huge company just didn't work. And I was burned out, really burned out. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. Um, and just had to take care of myself and, and take care of my body. Physically, I was falling apart at this young age. So I started doing Pilates. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and because I'm so type A, I just was like, 
well, why am I paying somebody to teach me Pilates? It, it, why don't I just go ahead and learn how to teach Pilates? And then I could teach myself and set up a studio and in my house and, you know, just do this. Cause I was really, it was really working for me. It was really very healing and wonderful. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm retired, right? I'm like young, but I'm done, right? I'm out. And so of course I chose the hardest program at the time to go get my, I mean, I it was an, um, like a graduate level <laughs> course in learning to teach Pilates that went on for almost a year. But I walked out of that with with that knowledge base and I was really good at it. I, I really miss it. I really would give all this up to go teach Pilates again if I could figure out how to do that. I was a really good Pilates teacher. I was really good. It's, what happened was because of where I came from, because of my husband's family who were big entrepreneurs and in the biotech sector and, you know, and big philanthropists in LA, I happened to know people who were who were quite wealthy and in this little sort of group of friends out in Malibu and they became my first client and literally within a matter of months um because I, I actually was really I'm gonna pat myself on the back I was really good at this all of a sudden I got these massive celebrity clients because I'm transforming people's bodies and helping them get out of pain and it was a it was an exciting and wonderful and worthy time. So I'm in their homes. I set up studios in all these people's homes. I like, you know, and I'm I also was training with some Cirque du Soleil people. So we're I'm putting trapezes in every once in a while. I'm like, oh, you gotta love these silks, you know, let's do some silks, silk work. And so that's what I was doing, but I was also accepted into that world because of who I was related to, who I was married into, and also what I had done. Uh, you know, in that company, some of these folks were running these major media companies who knew, you know, so I was like a known entity. And I think the best word for that is I sort of got trust washed, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, I'm still this, you know, I'm still this girl from the Midwest and with family from these guys. Like, I, we didn't, we're humble. We, we didn't have any of this. I just literally forced gumped my way into all of it. <laughs> But instead of instead of ping pong, it was Pilates. You know, oh, my cat is here. If there's going to be noise right now, okay. it's going to be this yeah. annoying cat. Um, I think it was Fred Allen who said that Hollywood is a place where people from Iowa mistake each other for movie stars. So, um, you know, the, he's like, I'm just this Midwest. Isn't everyone in Hollywood from the Midwest? I mean, is anyone from Hollywood? Pilates, I have, I wouldn't know the first thing about Pilates. I think that would be a good name for um, the media company that you created to do the video, right? It'd be like, oh God, we're gonna open the Pilates sure. app. It's everything's like jumbled slightly off. In another in another parallel universe, there's a company called Pilates that you're the CEO, and you're <laughs> sending um, all you know these video Snapchatty things, and my kids are just on their Pilates app all day. But it has nothing to do with moving the body around. I also want to say for the record that I only read Playboy for the articles, but I think that's self-evident. Um, I like the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a you know, as a as a as a novelist person, you know, Playboy has a a very big reputation as a literary oh, yeah. magazine. It's pretty that's legit. Right. So, you know, I'm only that's half right. kidding. Yeah. I'm only, and I'm, and I'm not. You know, my inability to mesh there uh, was probably because I was in this the wrong group and I was the wrong person. But, you know, there there was a lot of 
you know, on the magazine side as well, really talented people working there. Yeah. So, all right. So you're in, you're in Los Angeles, you're there because you want to be a screenwriter, you're writing, but you're also teaching Pilates. You've done this media company that blew up uh, during the, the great crash of the, of the, uh, the nineties. Then you were working for Playboy in this, in this capacity when Playboy is trying to expand into the, into that space where yep. people, uh, grown men are slowly realizing that they don't have to go to the corner store and, you know, avail themselves of brown paper bags anymore. They could just stay home and, you know, use their computer yeah. to achieve the same result. So this is all the trend here seems to be that you're a seer, you know, you see these things happening before they happen and, and, um, you know, kind of jump onto them. What do you see happening now? I was going to say, LB, Stephanie, what do you see happening now? What's next? Uh, for just in general, all of us? what stock should we buy? Tell us something. Oh, I, this is just something. No, I know my lanes. That is not my lane. Um, I see, I really, I really want everyone to pay attention to the folks with expertise on authoritarianism. Yeah. And the collapse of free societies or just civilizations, you know, certain certain civilizations and empires. Please, please listen to these people. I bring a lot of them into uh, the world beneath. We do have that. Uh, and you're you're one of them. we do have a, a an interview uh, show. Right. That's this sort of bridge between the narrative episodes, the scripted episodes. So I just. In the big seer thing, space of that, I just really, please listen. It, it is, we are in a very precarious moment. It, the forces that we're up against are vastly more powerful than we have been. Um, all along the way, we've been miscalculating. You miscalculated the GOP. I miscalculated Bill Barr and, and what would happen with the Mueller report. We've been underestimating the bad guys. And yep. they're really, really, really good <laughs> at being bad guys. And there's a real playbook and it's being followed. And this isn't to be paranoid or conspiratorial or to make everybody upset or have their hair be on fire. But there is a coordination going on. This is how nation states topple yep. because forces that you can't see use their fronts, whether it's you know, an organized crime has been been doing this for a while too. Um, they might have a media front. They might have. They have all. All these pieces are in play for our adversaries, global adversaries who want to see democracy end. They have put all of the pieces in place that they need in order to push for that to happen. They know what they're doing. So don't listen to anybody who's coming in there. There was like a little tweet. Someone said of like, uh oh. You know, because I was like, look, Tucker Carlson's freaking out right now. <laughs> he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is not disconnected to Putin's pout at that summit. They, they're kind of they're going to ratchet everything up here and just go full bore attacking our, our military, the top of our military leadership. Why not just tear that down? That's Putin's wet dream. It always has been. And and the Soviet leaders before him, you know, attack the U.S. military, attack the U.S. military. So their mouthpieces that are doing all their bidding whether you want to think that it's just a useful idiot or whether you can see some financial purse strings being pulled there behind the scenes. Um, when you dig a little deeper, there's, you know, you've got 
characters like this, like like Carlson, doing the work of our adversaries in a very sophisticated way. Yeah. So it's uh, someone put a little tweet. I was like, watch out. Putin's put a banana peel by your chair. When someone's doing that, when someone's trying to insert that into the discourse in this moment where we're really facing threats, right? Um, the greatest threat, I think, in a moment in our history that we've ever faced as a democracy. You know, there's been global threats that have happened for mankind. World War II was one of them. Right. Um, but for us, for our nation, for our democracy, listen to our president right now who is saying, you know, our adversaries do not want us to have democracy anymore. They're done with it. They want a different system. They don't believe in it. They don't think it works. And they got to take us out. That is happening. He's getting the intelligence briefings <laughs> from the greatest intelligence agencies in the world, ours. And he, he knows what he's saying. He knows what the threats are. It's just very difficult for people to wrap their minds around it. So we'll fall for things like, a, you know, somebody saying, oh, you, th you just think Putin's out putting banana peels everywhere. Look at you, conspiratorial. We'll fall for that rather than paying attention to, no, this is a coordinated attack. It's very sophisticated. A lot of people are in on it. A lot of people are useful idiots. It doesn't mean there's not an architecture and a strategy behind what's happening right now, behind what we're up against. And the role that media plays in this is massive, right? So here we are, you and I, still doing our thing. We thought we could... We would be done by now and I'd be back trying to figure out how to teach Pilates again or just write in screenplays, but we're not, we're still in this. So it's, that's it's, what I see. That's, that's not a good, that's a dark vision. I'm you know? sorry. No, 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 no. But it's, it's, you're, you're not wrong. And it, I, I, you know, part of the reason that we're here and that we're talking about this is to make sure that this doesn't happen. It's akin to like the, the thing about the Putin and the banana peel I have as a member of my family who who thinks he doesn't think that climate change is bullshit. He thinks it's overstated. So there's this whole theory, a sort of libertarian theory called lukewarming, which is like, yes, the earth is getting warmer, but it's not as bad as people think and right, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But the thing is, if we go full bore to try to combat climate change and clean up our act, why is that bad? And it's the same thing with this. It's the same thing with this. So if you and I and people like us are a little bit too strident in our cries to protect democracy, yeah. so what? At the end of the day, what's worse that we're that we push too hard or that we're just have our head up our ass like most people do? You know, I think that when once Biden got elected, a lot of people tuned out and I don't blame them. You know, this is the, the Trump era was horrible. It was a four-year assault and a trauma that all of us collectively faced. And, yeah. you know, we have we, we have to recover from that trauma, but we have to continue to fight to preserve what, what is ours. And I think, did we talk about this in my, I can't remember what we talked about in my interview for the, for, for your excellent podcast, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but, you know, most of the people now, World War II is such a long time ago. The people that fought in World War II are old or dead. And people that lived during that period of fascism are gone. There's no one left really who remember this or very few people left who are primary uh, sources for that period. So fascism, authoritarianism, the authoritarian state becomes something that we read about in history books and therefore is easy for somebody like Sean Hannity 
to minimize. Well, Stalin wasn't so bad. He was our ally in World War II. How bad could yeah. he have been? Yes, he was he was bad. He killed more people than Hitler did. Stalin bad. They're all they're all bad. All of the strong men are bad. And we don't want to know what this feels like because it's fucking awful. The only people that have lived through this are people like Gary Kasparov. Um, and people who came out of, of Soviet, uh, the Eastern Bloc yeah, countries. Yeah. And they're the ones, not coincidentally, who are screaming the loudest about this. And I think we, you know, we do have to listen to them. Now, you mentioned Biden listening to the best intelligence services in the world. That's right. And that's part of your podcast. But I also want to ask about your uncle, who, um, Jeremy Black, who worked for the NSA for years, was a top level guy there and was on, I can say this because I interviewed him at Prevail. He was yeah. very, very, very nice guy. Um, so, you know, when we did the interview, I got an email from the NSA saying, okay, this has been approved. You can't change one word of it. And I was like, <laughs> you just want to change like a four to a two, you know, F-O-R to T-O just to, but I'm like, not doing it, Sorry. not doing it, not fucking Don't with the NSA. Now, I, <laughs> um, so, He's obviously somebody that's very important in your life. But my question is, when did you become aware of the fact that he did what he did? Oh, it took a while. And, and you don't, you know, I don't want to say that that somehow gave me an insight into anything. You know, um, those guys are locked down, especially at that level that he was at. He was, you know, working. He, he ended up being inspector, deputy inspector general for the whole agency. Like, it was this is not a little career, um, and and doing other things of, you know, that it's an interesting place. So I did learn about the place, but I'm not going to learn a lot from him. Um, you're not going to learn a lot from a family member other than getting a very clear sense of, oh, okay, you know, the threats that we face are very real and devastating. And these are the folks that are on the tip of the spear and they're never going to talk about it. You know, they're just never going to discuss it with you, even if you're family. So I would do things like, you know, when we were when we were together, this is my dad's twin brother, everybody. So we we'd see them a lot, you know, like, Take me to your office. <laughs> Are you a spy? Right. <laughs> I was just the kid that was like that. Um, no oh, way. No I'm way. Like, <laughs> it's so yeah. hard to so hard to imagine. <laughs> you know, and then and then I would, you know, kind of, you know, and he he was just lovely, and he would always deflect, and you know, he always got us, and I wasn't the only one, right? But his immediate family, his girls, had learned. You know, yeah, don't ask that. It's like, it's like, it's never going to go anywhere. We're never going to. Um, so sometimes if you get like with someone like that, when they raise their eyebrow, you know, a little, a little tiny, you can, you start to notice little tiny things going on mm -hmm. in your expression. And you're like, oh, oh, I'm in something. It becomes, everything becomes very acute. If you're in that space, asking and talking to him. The only time I saw him, upset really upset um and i was like oh this is really bad um was around snowden mm, and yeah. not because and i and i said something at that time and i was like well maybe whistleblow maybe espionage isn't whistle whistleblowing i said it just like that 
And he looked at me and he goes, that's exactly right. Mm. And that's the only time I ever got anything like that out of him was just a confirmation, you know, that that motherfucker, he, this wasn't a whistleblowing thing. This guy was in there to steal our shit yeah. for fucking Russia, right? Where For exactly, or maybe China, I don't know, exactly where he ran off to and got found himself in an FSB safe house. But he, he stole shit. Uh, well, it wasn't let me blow the whistle. This was let me poke the eyes out of U.S. intelligence of the greatest agency on the planet. He just went in there to fucking blind us. Right. And, you know, and so on the on the first interview uh, talks not specifically about that, but he does talk a little bit about, you know, that always in intelligence, there's just, you know, sometimes there's there's mistakes. It's a big it's a big institution. And um, he's very honest about that side of it all. But I, I will never, you will never find me in the camp of thinking that that twerp, right, was some kind of, that kid, that punk, right? I recognize him from the era of the people I was hiring to build my shit, right? Mm -hmm. I know those assholes when they're assholes. Um, it, it never, never, never. And will I be in the camp that that was somehow some great act of whistleblowing or help to the American people? My God, we don't even really know what he, the extent of what he did. We really don't. We may never know. He, and look, the reason you can tell apart Sorry, from anything everybody. else. Sorry. <laughs> he spent, he no spent, I'm not a fan. He spent 40 days at the airport in Moscow. What's the name of the airport in Moscow? Do you remember the name? No, whatever. No, it's the name of uh, of Mogilevich's gang is named oh, after the right. fucking oh, airport in Moscow right. where right. Snowden right. hold up, right? So that the guy that airport in particular is like ground zero of Russian mob, like high end top of the line Russian mob. That is the fucking epicenter. Snowden was there for 40 days. Yeah. Like Jesus in the fucking desert. So even if he went there thinking he was a whistleblower, when he left there, he would not know whistleblower anymore. So yeah, maybe they the, manipulated the, him into to stealing all our shit. I don't know. I, the, the, if you go back and read the documentation before Devin Nunes went, went to the dark side, even Nunes and Schiff were in lockstep condemning yeah. this guy yeah. uh, 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 on house intelligence. So there's, there's no, there's no, what's the word equivocation about this in, nope. in, in, in that sphere. Everybody in the intelligence community knows this guy is fucking yep. bad. So that's, right. that's it. Now I want to talk about your podcast, the world beneath, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with Stephanie Lincoln's Bible. It's where you learned. At least 83. Trump is a Russian asset. That it's time to establish a direct contact with Donald Trump. January 6th was never just a political rally. An insurrection, an attempted overthrow of the federal government. The origins of coronavirus. Accidental leak, non-intentional, of a laboratory that was doing research on these viruses. How the Crown covered up child abuse. The vast majority of those people never imagined for one moment they were effectively participating in the concealment of child abuse but they did rudy is probably in violation of a faro law and the truth about jeffrey epstein it's a, it's a 
I'm Zev Shalev. Join me at Narrative. It's where truth lives at narrative.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back with Lincoln's Bible. Hi, Stephanie. I'm, I'm going to enjoy this. Okay, before we get to the podcast, Let yourself I, free. <laughs> yeah, free. I can't not totally free. I can't say your last name, but whatever. That's fine. Um, so, oh, you could. Ha, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to even hint at it. Um, my, uh, how did you get from, you know, the Pilates studio back to being a screenwriter? Because that was that's sort of the through line, right? Let, let's cover that before yeah, we get I into the podcast. That, yeah, I took that really hard right into, or left into into something or wherever, up, I guess, or down into into a whole different thing. And and I came back to, uh, I came back to writing because when I, <laughs> when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, I knew I was only going to have one child. It was really a challenge to have her even. And and we were older parents and we just decided this is, we, I don't know, we just kind of knew. We just, we just want this, this one baby. We're so grateful. And, um, and I tried so hard for so long, you know, to be a mom. And so I kind of went for it. Okay. <laughs> always been you know I'm somebody who was you know I, I was always been fit obviously and but I was like okay it's my one pregnancy I'm just gonna I'm just gonna eat all the sandwiches like I, I was like, <laughs> I was really I kept I never liked sandwiches and all I wanted were sandwiches and at that time I was actually I still had some of my clients one of them was in a, a great big superhero movie at the time and so I'm on set all the time with that and these are my friends and you know, they just so you guys know on these uh, on these sets, there's there's you know there's catering and there's all of that craft, but there's always a sandwich truck too. And um, oh boy, I made friends with those people in that sandwich truck. And does your daughter like sandwiches? She loves sandwiches. That's what happens. Yeah. I don't like them anymore, mm-hmm. but she can't. She loves them. So I was. Um, they let me in there. They let me in the truck. And here was this, and I was pretty pregnant. This was like my third trimester. I'm in there doing all this stuff. And so I'm in there and we're crafting the perfect sandwiches. And actually we got really good at the sandwiches that that the crew and the cast were all coming to have the sandwiches. This was, you know, this is how it is, right? You know, why not just make every environment fun and kind of make your own, put your own stamp on it. So I was the sandwich pregnant Pilates lady. I think, you know, they were like, what is this? Who is this character? Anyway. Long story short, I gained a lot of weight in that last trimester and I wasn't worried about it. I thought, well, I'll be, um, you know, I'll just go back and, you know, I'll have my baby and lose it all. I'll be fine. And I was really enjoying myself. What happened was that sudden sort of big weight gain triggered something in my spinal cord that nobody knew was there. I had sort of this ticking time bomb in there. I had a, a cyst inside my spinal column. Oh wow! Um, something called a syrinx, and um, and it turns out it's it's my mom, other other folks in in the family had them. I think just the added what the neurosurgeons told me at the time, and I think they're correct. That added sudden added weight and pressure um, had it, it grew a little bit and it touched on, it hit my nerves. So 
I was, I lost, um, I, I became semi-paralyzed on my, like a stroke on my right side from the waist down, I dropped foot. And it was like, I had, it was a lot of issues. Oh my God. So I had this new baby and, um, and I couldn't move and um, I couldn't walk. I couldn't hold her as much as I wanted to. I was in bed a lot trying to figure out how to rehab myself out of that situation, which I did. Um, it took, took about a decade. And um, my husband, who was just amazing, he just write because I, I, I'd been writing all this time. I'm a poet yeah. and I'm a writer. I had never stopped writing and um, I just wasn't earning a living with it. And so I just started writing. I'd had a TV show a pilot in there somewhere, but, uh, but I, I wasn't really doing it. So I spent about two years, those first two years when she was so little with her by my side in bed, just writing script after script after script. I mean, just all these stories were pouring out of me. And I got to a point with one of them where I'm like, okay, this is really good. And so I had had an entertainment attorney from when I had that uh, TV pilot. And uh, I said, you know, this is what I've been doing. And I showed it to him because uh, I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an agent. And he was like, this is really good. Well, I'm going to get you we're going to get your representation right away. And so I just sort of, I just wrote my way out of that hell. And, um, and everyone responded to the writing. I didn't pull any of my cards. I didn't play any card from that very elite bubble I was in. Um, Cause I just, I don't know. Uh, you know, when you have an event like that, a physical event like that, or maybe something in your life and maybe people listening can relate to this it does show you who your real friends are. A lot of people can't handle that. They don't know how to show up for you when you're going through something like that, especially, you know, for some of these folks, when you are supposed to be the physical Pilates lady who made their bodies perfect. And, um, and so, and not that anyone was cruel. Everyone was lovely. They just, you know, who was I, right? They just moved on. And some people stuck and stuck hard and were there for me. And those are my friends to this day. And uh, so that's, that's what happened. So I didn't play any of those cards. I just wanted the writing. I was like, well, let's just see if I was, I was in a nice, comfortable position aside from this devastating thing that was physically happening to me of my husband and, and, and support. And I had the space to do that. I had the space to write. I had the space to see whether my writing in and of itself without me playing one powerful, one of my powerful cards, right, uh, of, you know, knowing studio execs and all this to sort of just can my writing make its way into the upper echelons of, of the studio system all by itself. And eventually it did. It really did. And I think surprised some of those folks that were like, oh, you're, you're a really good writer. I remember you when you were, you know, helping me get in shape for, uh, you know, for my movie. And I so, was like, yeah. So I'm also very glad I kept all those worlds very compartmentalized and separate because I think I also earned a lot of respect from folks. They know I, I didn't use them. Right, um, right. You know, I earned, I earned my spot as a screenwriter. Um, so that's what happened. I spent, I spent a decade doing that figured out how to walk again. You know, I was on a cane for a while. I'm not on that cane anymore. 
And that's my story that I wait. Did you have? Did you right? Did you have like a really cool cane that was like car, oh, carved wood I handle? And, you know, like, <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh, I went full. I went full into the canes. I had I had canes made for me uh, in Costa Rica with this beautiful wood. Okay. I had some antique ones that I was able to scour around and find and then customize. And then I had the you know the you know, you also need the canes that actually really support you and work. So I had the granny canes sure. um, when I when I did need to really, you know, make sure I was OK um, walking or tra traversing right instead of just a car dropping me off and looking fabulous for, you know, a meeting with the studio executive to talk about, I don't know, Marco Polo or something. So uh, I always had a fabulous cane for those situations, of course. OK, that's what that's what I thought. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about I want to talk about your your podcast because I've been sort of on the sidelines watching this happen and the first thing is now you you've been interested in the underworld and the and the mafia and the mob and all this stuff for as long as I've known you yeah but this idea of taking the study of the mob and the study of spycraft and the world of of spies and especially the NSA, like the, the signals intelligence, right? Code breaking and that kind of thing. For and season one, yeah. Overlapping it and right. telling the two stories simultaneously is is not something that I think I've seen before. But man, you bang this shit out so fast. It's really, it's really <laughs> astonishing. I mean, really, really fast. And, um, and it's good. It's so good. You had written the first episode of this and and i was on a walk in the morning and you said well do you want to hear it and i was like um okay and you read me the episode which is you know sometimes people are saying would well, you want to read this thing that i wrote and you're just like oh my god no please god no but yeah, i was I like I listen i relate to that yeah, i can't even yeah. tell you how many people have tried to hand me their screenplays um um and you read me this thing and it's fucking so good it's so yeah. interesting and well told and the way that it moves through this stuff, I think it's really going to help people understand not just the history of organized crime, but how things work the way that they work and why we are where we are, why organized crime is important in the society and how it, the place that it, that it, where it fits and how it runs parallel to the, to the world of spies by necessity, because they share this penchant for secrecy, for omerta, and, and this kind of thing. So, um, but take me through, like, what was the genesis of the idea to do this as a podcast? When did that happen? Because it wasn't, I don't think it was that long ago. It was actually, was over, it was a year ago. Um, so I had been crafting this for years. <laughs> right. Um, you know, after, after the whole thing, you know, during this five-year period that we've been in, uh, um, and I tried to take it out. You know, what, what happened was as I was studying Russian organized crime and getting really familiar with that, I understood um, just because of my own interest in a lot of the re reading and research and even some some films uh, that I screenplays I worked on, you know, that were my own specs, not something I wrote for a studio. Um, uh, American organized crime uh, that 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 was very familiar terrain for me. But I've learned even more about that since um since starting this, but in trying to figure out, understand these Russian mobsters, you can't do it without seeing their intelligence agency. It, it just, it's, they're fused over there. It's a different thing. And so in unpacking that, I 
was looking very differently at the U.S. organized crime, right? sort of the classic gangsters that, that we all know about from, that started with prohibition. And I was just finding all these connections in all of that as I was doing all that history. And, and so it lined up like that. Um, and uh, once, I, once I had hooked myself in there in a certain way, boy, did it unfold for me. It wasn't, you know, it feels like maybe I wrote it fast, but I, I did. It, it was, it was a lot. Well, the research, the research part of it was, is, is obviously yours, but the, the actual cranking out of this thing. Oh, well, I'm a professional writer. I know, but still, you yeah. know, I died. Sometimes we got to crank out a screenplay in, in less than two weeks. So it, it's, you know, you, you learn how to write, <laughs> you, you learn yeah. how to crank it out. There is a world beneath our own, created over a century ago by America's original gangsters. Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, Al Capone. And it was infiltrated almost immediately by the world's most formidable spies. The new podcast, The World Beneath, illuminates the untold 100-year history of mobsters and spies. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. So I was like, okay, we're going to have to start from the beginning and just lay some bricks down, right? So that I'm not the only seer, so that everybody else can see it and tell the story in a very calculated, specific, intentional, methodical, careful, and righteous, source to the nines, everybody, way. If I can get everyone caught up on the knowledge base, then we can really fly with all of this stuff. And so that's when it was like, okay, I'm going to need to do a podcast because I'm not going to be able to get past the disinformation going on in these executives' brains. My buyers, my audience as a screenwriter um, that works for studios are studio executives. It's not the end person. My scripts don't make it to the end person. They get caught up in development. But, you know, I have to I have to write I have to pitch and write to sell into the minds of and the listening of very smart very busy often very ADD adult uh, adults that are you know running studios um, that's who I have to that's my audience and I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't penetrate I could talk to them all day long about science fiction and and conjure worlds you know or adapt books that they had that were fantasy and all that but if i was trying to tell them about the real fucking history of organized crime they couldn't take it in and uh and so that's why i sh- i was like okay gotta go right to i gotta go right to the audience and the way to do that now is um is through a narrative podcast so that's what i did i think it's a it's a great podcast i think it's gonna do really well i think people are gonna be super interested in it one of the main characters in the story is a woman I'd never heard of before. Her name is Elizabeth Friedman. Tell, tell everybody a little bit, anybody who hasn't listened to the first episode of your podcast yet, talk a little bit about her and what her. Yeah, she, well, she really gets is. the second, she really gets the second episode. Second so, episode. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth Friedman, I introduced her a little bit in the first. She's our hero. You know, you, here's the thing, everybody. Like my uncle. The folks that work in intelligence at our big agencies, especially at sort of a high level, 
they're the good guys. They're not the bad guys. They're the good guys. They're looking out for us. Um, this isn't to say that I'm somehow endorsing some military, you know, industrial intelligence complex, blah, 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 all that. <laughs> I'm just saying these are really good people who are really trying to protect you and me and this nation. They really are. And so it was important to me to have a hero. And I didn't know who it was going to be as I was sort of rolling out these original gangsters. And the more I got, this was a couple of years ago. And the more, uh, and I had known about her because my uncle kept telling me, you got to read about her. You got to read about her. And then, and then a few years back, I was like, oh, <laughs> she yeah, hunted yeah. them. She hunted the gangsters. <laughs> and um, uh, so she was, she's the godmother, quite frankly, she is the godmother of the NSA. She founded that institution, not thinking that she was. So she was back at, uh, in the early, you know, right as World War I was happening, and we were getting pulled into that war with the Zimmerman memo. Uh, she and her, uh, 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 a man she was working with at the time who became her husband, William, um, but they weren't married yet. They were falling in love. They were working at a place called Riverbank, which was just this eccentric textile tycoons sort of think tanky you know place yeah. you know, playground of the mind and he had all kinds of like scientists there and labs there and zoos and it's strange place so he had found her um because she knew about shakespeare she was a scholar and she was a poet and uh, it was this, it's you'll hear that story of how that all happened uh, in the podcast but he was he was convinced at the time that there was a secret code inside Shakespeare's um, first folio that told the truth about who Shakespeare really was, you know, because he wasn't William Shakespeare, it was this other guy. And that other guy also happened to be, you know, there's a big conspiracy around it all. Okay. So he was convinced this was all hidden in code with the fonts in, right? So he, no one had approached that that way. So he found Elizabeth and she went in and she looked at this and she knew quite quickly, no, <laughs> it's still getting um, But, um, but she created a scientific method for proving that one way or another. And that method became cryptid, is cryptanalysis. Okay. So it's the, the ability to decipher codes or coded messages um, without having the keys. So, you know, it's not, you know, everyone knows the Christmas story when, you know, Ralphie finally gets the, he's the, the, Ovaltine. the secret thing and he's got finally got the key and he's going through. Well, imagine doing that with something very sophisticated, a code very sophisticated, and you don't have the key. You gotta just look at it and figure out what the hell is this thing? And she created the process and the method by which to do that. Um, and then when World War II happened and radio was going on, um, or I'm sorry, World War I, and, and you had enemies and we were pulled into it and you had our, our adversaries sending coded messages over this new thing called radio and these radio signals, we were plucking that out of thin air or getting the message, the telegram at the end of it. Um, and she was the one decrypting all of that for the U.S. War Department. She and her soon-to-be husband, they did it all. They decrypted every freaking thing that we, that we had. So that's how powerful this woman's mind was. After that, the, uh, the Treasury Department, you know, it was the Navy and then the Coast Guard and then the Treasury Department, but it ended up being the Treasury Department, came knocking on her door because those same radio towers um, were picking up signals from bootleggers, from these mm -hmm. run-running ships. They were sending coded messages as well, as well during Prohibition. 
And there was two years of them and they were backlogged and um, the Coast Guard and the Treasury had no idea because that's where that was the law enforcement that was responsible for catching these catching these ships and catching these, you know, stopping this illicit alcohol. They had no idea what this what this gobbledygook was. And so uh, there was a, probably maybe two, three people <laughs> or there was a little more than that. Elizabeth trained the whole first uh, first all the original uh, code breakers that the U.S. Uh, government had, military had. So it came knocking on her door and she, of course, decrypted them all. And she found underneath all of that um, an enterprise, a massive, mm. massive smuggling enterprise, a, an empire. So then she became the, the main strategic weapon that our Treasury Department had in fighting and taking down this, these, these gangsters, our original gangsters. So everyone will get to learn what it means when we, these days with this 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 idiot former president we had, this Donald Trump, when everyone says, oh, it was taxes that took down Al Capone. You're going to learn what that story really was and who the heroes in it. And Elizabeth was our hero. So and then she went on from that. Um, it's like a it's like a superhero thing. Like she has this weird origin story. There's like the eccentric millionaire that funds the origin story. And then there's these bad guys that are doing bad things and bringing rot to Gotham City. And, you know, we have to, we have to combat that. It's really so, so yeah, I, I, it's such a, it's such a great podcast. Really. It's really excellent. So one of the, one of the things about it too, that's cool is that you have um, every week, if you're listening to it standard and not, and not downloading it all and binging it, which you you can do on, what is it? What's the service you can yeah, an yeah. Apple new subscription thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you do that, you can get it all at once. If not, you're listening yeah. to it as the episodes come out on Mondays, you have the, the serialized sort of narrative uh, story. And then on Thursdays, you have an, uh, an interview with someone um, that talks about stuff that just happened and, and sort of introduces stuff that's going to happen in the next episode. So right. since these things are all binged out, can you can you give us a hint about people that you maybe have talked to or is it a state secret? It's not a state secret. <laughs> I. I... <laughs> It's all, yeah, it will all be populated on on Apple Podcast. So I, t- I the first interview, of course, is with Unc, you know, um, and so that's where I sort of share my name and and people hear his name and we just have a conversation and um, because he's the one who introduced me to Elizabeth Friedman and and so he gets to and he's just the best. He's one of the best men I know. So we talk um, and then you and I talk. Uh, we have our history conversation, which okay. very interesting directions. As I was, <laughs> I don't, I do not remember so long anything. Ago. I, I know, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, as we tend to do, and then I have, uh, I went, you know, helping us on the Elizabeth side also is the George uh, George C. Marshall Foundation. Um, so the that's where Elizabeth and William left their archives. They left their legacy, all of their work that they could, that the all everything that the NSA didn't come and take, <laughs> which then my uncle is the one who declassified. Um, so we I, I have the director of library and archives is a woman named Melissa Davis. And she's, I say in her intro is like, God, you want someone to help you go through the walk through the darkness and inform you and guide you and light the way, go find a happy librarian. I mean, <laughs> she is extraordinary. And I didn't plan on having her be one of the interviews, but the more I spoke with her as we sort of going through the process of, oh, okay, let's clear some of this. And we got to clear, you know, you have to, 
you know, you had to do this when you're making a, making a show like this. I just realized, oh, oh, everybody has to hear her talk about Elizabeth yeah. and George Marshall. Um, uh, so she's, she's quite wonderful uh, and a surprise. So it's folks like that, that you wouldn't normally ever hear from that are wells of knowledge and expertise and information and experience. And we should be, again, I say, listening to all these folks. Um, uh, Ruth uh, Ben-Hayat, who, or Git, who we both know, who wrote Strong Men. She's great. Oh, yeah. God, that's a, that's an incredible, yeah. she's just incredible. And I talked to some intelligence guys. I talked to Figluzzi. Nice. Um, okay. I talked to a KGB, a former KGB officer. Okay. Um, I talked to some authors. You know, I talked to the man, Jason Fogoni, who wrote the book, to me, the book on Elizabeth that really sung. There's several books on her and there's a lot of scholars uh, uh, of her work, but he found a way as a, as a writer. So uh, to really bring her to life, I think. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book called The Woman Who Smashed Codes. So he's on there. And then I end with Andy McCabe. Oh, Andy <laughs> McCabe. That's, that's, that's not nobody. Yeah, I end with Andy. Um, and that's a really powerful interview um, because I get into it with him about the Russian mob. Nice. And Andy McCabe knows about the Russian mob because he was one of the first people in the FBI to start combating the Russian mob. If you read his book, you know this. Yeah. His book is really good. I thought. His book is great. Yeah. So we talk about that because, you know, that's where we're headed, everybody. We're headed to just continuing to unpack and understand and unfurl this, uh, this world beneath us that actually has a second economy that is larger than our own. It is of dark money, of blood money made off the off the backs of that original, the original syndicate of Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano who created the, the offshore laundromat and the process of money laundering. They built a structure so sound that um, trans, as we've evolved into transnational organized crime, which has kind of always been by the way, heroin is, you know, they were bringing heroin in in the 20s and 30s and it wasn't from um, Arkansas, let me tell you. Um, so it's uh, it's always been transnational, but you know where th- that term really goes into like fusing with nation states and fusing with terrorism and things like that. This criminal underworld, they use that laundromat. They they pop pushing all that money through there. So um, it, we sort of. I just want you guys to see the money. I want you to be able to stand in the money, stand in the underworld, in that second economy, in that offshore laundromat, and look up. And when you stand there and look up at our realm, you can see all of the forces. It takes a while to map them all out, but you can see all of these forces that we're up against and how orchestrated this whole effort is at toppling us, at toppling democracy right now. So that's the context for the current moment. That's what I'm doing. It's really terrific. So I, and I like how you snuck the title into into what you just said. You know, when you look at the world beneath, so it's called the world beneath. Go subscribe to it right now. Just turn this this one off and just go go subscribe and and listen to the episodes that that are available to you. Or just just you know go sign up for the service and 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 binge the whole damn thing. It'll be terrific. So Lincoln's Bible, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. The 
The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signa Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.